Warning. Channel of Catastrophe is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This podcast contains very detailed descriptions of human suffering, cursing, another foul language, and the effects of disasters on humans. If you do not want to hear about this, I urge you, turn away now. If you do want to hear about this, by all means, continue listening. This has been my PSA, and we will get to the episode right about now. Hello, I'm Michael, and welcome to the very first episode of my debut podcast, Channel of Catastrophe. I grew up wanting to be an architect, and have long been fascinated by structural failures and other disasters. Even though I shifted to web design and graphic design as a major... I never stopped being fascinated by the inner workings of disasters. I recently ran out of disaster documentaries to binge listen to while playing Minecraft. So, I downloaded a podcast app. After watching a few fantastic disaster podcasts, more like listening to a few fantastic disaster podcasts, shoutouts to Rachel and David of All Bad Things, Carrie Faye of Great Disasters, and Jennifer Matteris of Disaster Area. You should really check them out if you want some high-quality podcasts of a similar topic to mine, considering that I'm just a broke-ass college student with a phone and no mic <laughs> and a recording app. <laughs> and seeing the general sparsity of disaster podcasts, I decided to start my own really crappy one. Now that the room cleaning is out of the way, the first disaster for this podcast is the deadliest peacetime maritime disaster in history. Now this disaster was a result of a perfect storm of corruption, maintenance issues, overloading, and presumably poor crew management and sheer negligence. The Doña Paz was a row-row ferry, and what that is, is a ferry that you roll onto and roll off of with a car, hence the name row-row. It was built as the, I'm going to butcher this badly because it's Japanese, it was built as a Himiuri Maru on April 25th. 1963 for the Japanese RKK line in the Onomichi Dockyard in, get this, Hiroshima. I ain't gonna cover that one as this ain't a wartime atrocity podcast. Now, in 1975, she was sold to the Sulpicio lines of the Philippines and renamed to the Don 
Sulpicio. It is often held as superstition among sailors that when you change a ship's name, you change her fate for the worse. In the Don Sulpicio's case, that happened on June 5th, 1979, while on the Mania to Cebu route. That day, a severe conflagration ripped, ripped through her hull. Not hull, hull. There's a difference. The ship itself, the metal bits that keep the ship afloat. Although no one died, the ship was declared totaled. Unfortunately, it was rebuilt and renamed the Donia Pass in 1981 and returned to service because Sulpicio lines are a bunch of greedy fucks who really only care about money and nothing else like every other corporation ever. Fuck you, Mercy Health. So by December 20th, 1987, the ship has already had one major incident and two name changes. Oh yeah, and her radio allegedly didn't work either. Not exactly the best track record. The ship was only rated to carry 1,424 passengers. However, on that day, she set out from Talcobon, I mean, sorry, Taclobon, with 4,410 passengers, nearly three times the permitted capacity. Understandably, this overloading of people had consequences on the ship's stability. As survivor Lufgardo Nieto put it, before I rode the ship, I noticed she was, she was tilted to one side. Inside the ship, there was no room to move. Another consequence of the overcrowding was that the passengers were unable to sleep on the crowded decks, and even if they were, it was in a single cot with three other people, typically. According to survivor Eludia Baxal, who was traveling with her father, who survived as well, there were so many people. We were like cockroaches or ants. There were just so many of us. The passengers could not sleep because there was no place to lay down. There was no place to sit down. Among the numerous people on board was an entire battalion of the Philippine Army. They, like so many others, were not on the passenger manifest. Of this entire battalion's worth of Philippine soldiers, only Lufgardo Nieto would survive. As he put it, there were many soldiers on board, all heading home to their families, because it was Christmas. I think around a thousand soldiers died, because that's how many there are in a battalion. Now that we know the background on the Donia Path, Let's get into the other ship in the equation, shall we? The M.T. Vector. Now this was a hot mess of a ship. Unlike the Doña Paz, the Vector's history isn't as well documented. 
cargo ships rarely are documented well, but they usually get built, ply the seven seas, and get sent to the shipbreakers without anyone giving them much of a notice. But the vector, well, the vector was something else in terms of documentation or lack thereof. Not even a picture exists. And the only known model of the ship was last seen in a 2009 documentary. So, there isn't much info on what the hell the ship actually looked like. What is known is that the Vector was built by the Novotas Industrial Corporation of Mania in 1980. So she was only seven years old at this at this incident. And she was built as the Oil Nick 2 for an unknown buyer slash owner. She was 170 feet long, 38 feet wide, and weighed 629 tons when empty. Sometime between when she was built and the incident, she was sold to the Vector Shipping Incorporated also of Menea. And she was renamed the MT Vector. Now, despite being less than a decade old, the Vector had way more problems than the Donia Paz did. The Vector had a faulty rudder, and as a result of this, required two people to steer her, so she had two captains. As a result of this, the ship developed a zigzag pattern, went underway. The Vector was also operating without a license, as she was unseaworthy. This was due not only to the aforementioned rudder issue, but also due to the piss-poor shape of the ship overall. However, unlike the Donia Pass, the Vector did in fact have a working radio, which will come into play later. On December 20th, 1987, the Vector was operating under contract for Caltex, which would later become Chevron. She was fully loaded, and sources vary, so I'm putting this as a general estimate or range. She was fully loaded with anywhere between 6,000 to 8,000 barrels of crude oil. These two ships were now on a collision course. The night of September 20th, 1987 was clear in the Tablas Strait. 
Although the seas were choppy, there was near perfect visibility. At 11.30 p.m., passengers heard a loud bang as the MT Vector sliced into the switchboard room of the Donya Pass on the port side. Now, for those of you who don't know, the port side of a ship essentially means the left side of a ship. You can't see this, but I'm holding up my hand, my left hand, in an L shape. <laughs> kind of useless since this is a fucking podcast, but you know. Anyway. This predictably plunged the ferry into darkness, as it now had no electricity. This also had the effect of sending chunks of metal and oil barrels flying, and simultaneously igniting the cargo of the MT Vector. So, you can... Just picture this in your head right now. It's not good. According to survivor Generoso Batolia, who is sleeping on the roof with his two friends, all three of them survived, by the way, the sound was almost reminiscent of thunder. Dear. Dear goodness. So coupled with a jolt from the collision, and the flying oil barrels, and the flame on the vector, you can imagine the sheer terror the passengers felt. The fire spread quickly to the ferry. Many passengers in a scramble to escape fled lower into the ship, essentially dooming them to a horrid, 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 horrendous death via either trampling, smoke insulation, or burning. Amongst countless screams and cries for help. According to Survivor, I'm going to butcher this, Zosimo de la Rama, who suffered permanent scarring and lost his sister-in-law. The whole place was burning. I heard cries for help. And I kept saying, God, God, why is this happening? And I imagined Satan laughing at all of us. As the fire took hold even more, hundreds of passengers, including Salvador Baxal, whose daughter I mentioned earlier, plunged into shark-infested, burning water. And quickly found the only safe place was under the waves. According to Salvador, Under the sea, you could feel the heat from the fire above. Your body could feel it was boiling. I thought my body would explode from the heat. (laughs) 
Some passengers made makeshift rafts out of suitcases as the fire was so intense that lifeboats couldn't be deployed. And the life jackets were locked in the boxes by the crew. These poor people didn't even have life jackets or lifeboats. Not that it mattered anyway, as we're about to get into. Even so, everyone who remained on the surface after jumping was incinerated. Even those who weren't incinerated and had dived under the water weren't safe, as some simply lost the will to live and drowned or succumbed to their burns in the water. Now, sometime around this point, the MT Vector sent out a distress call. However, the damage to it was done as well. Only two of its crew would survive. Ironically, both of whom were allegedly asleep below deck. The Vector would burn for four hours after the collision before sinking, while the Donia Poth only burned for two more hours before sinking in roughly 1,788 feet of water. As of 2019, neither wreck has been found. Of the 4,502 people on board the Adonia Paz and MT Vector, only 26 would survive. That's over 99% of the passengers did not survive this incident. Two from the Vector and 24 from the Donia Paz. All 26 survivors were eventually plucked from the water by a passing ferry, the MS Don Claudio, and taken to the hospital. I'm sorry, taken to a hospital. Alright. Now, sorry for this cut, but if you hear a truck going by, they changed recording locations. So, I don't know if it... Also, this is a few days later, so... Let's get on with the recording. Now, the aftermath. The Sulpicio line immediately denied any accusations that the Donia Pass was overloaded. And then they proceeded to get the balls to try and pay off the family members of those on the manifest what is, in today's money, a mere 519 U.S. dollars. And to those not on the manifest, they got nothing. 
Now, understandably, this royally pissed off the family members of the victims. And they proceeded to protest in Rizal Park near the offices of the Sulpicio lines, chanting things like, Where are our loved ones? Or, Show us the bodies. Where are the bodies? There is actually video of the protests in the 2009 National Geographic documentary, Asia's Titanic. I used this documentary for reference, and I highly recommend it. It's very well acted on the dramatizations and has survivor interviews out the wazoo. Now, complicating the anger further with the fact that the Supreme Court would place all the blame on vector shipping, making them solely responsible when it was quite clear that both ships were the issue here. Not all was lost, though, as the same court did rule that the compensation should be given to the victims that the compensation should be given to the families of even victims who weren't on the manifest. Caltex was also rightfully acquitted of any wrongdoing. <laughs> However, no one ultimately saw any money, and victims are still waiting for justice all these years later, and I doubt it will ever come. Now, despite the court clearing them, the families of the victims also sued Caltex in the Louisiana court system. This crossed uh, countries. The the lawsuits weren't just just uh, centered in the Philippines. There was also one going on in the U.S. And I can't believe I'm about to defend a bloody oil company, but here I am. Although Caltex are no saints, well, although Caltex are no saints, how in the heck were they supposed to know? The company that they were contracting was using a ship that was unseaworthy, malfunctioning, and unsafe. Just how? Believe me, I'd like them like to blame them too, but they were completely innocent for once. I mean, for once, the oil company didn't have blood on its hands in this case. Now, the ultimate cause. I get the urge to blame Caltex because it was their product that fueled the fire. However, all the blame here lies on Vector Shipping and Sulpicio Lines who failed to properly maintain their ships. And maybe the captain of the Doña Paz who was allegedly throwing a party at the time of the disaster and, similar to the Estonia, left someone unqualified at the helm. I say allegedly because none of the Donia Paz's crew survived the incident. 
And this all comes from the word of survivor Lufgardo Nieto, as well as the Philippines Coast Guard, who say the crew were busy getting plastered while the captain watched a film on a Betamax. <laughs> Anyone remember those things? I sure as hell don't. I mean, <laughs> I grew up in the mid-90s to early 2000s. Unfortunately, this is not the last disaster from this company I will be covering. There are three more. The Doña Marlene in 1988, Princess of the Orient in 1998, and Princess of the Stars in 2008. There is a good reason they earned the nickname Suspicious Lines. That is four fatal wrecks in the span of 21 years. And this, my friends, is where the story ends. 4,000 plus dead, two lost wrecks, lawsuits in two countries, a company with a very bad reputation, actually so bad they changed their name, and families waiting for justice over 30 years later. Sorry for the downer ending, but I don't know. Just go off and watch some puppy videos, I guess. This has been Michael Taylor, and this has been Channel of Catastrophe. Stay safe and watch for disasters.